つくということの六点です。thoughts, words, actions。So today we are starting a new series called Small Things, Big Difference. And、um, as we're starting this, here we go. How many of you, when you sit down to a Thanksgiving meal and you see all the bountiful harvest in front of you, you see all the bountiful harvest in front of you, how many of you look at that meal and you go, today is the day I need to diet? Let me see your hands. Anybody, or, or Christmas, or you know, whenever you have a bunch of people at a meal, you, you think right now is the time that I need to do this. How many of you? No one? There we go. I think we got it. Come on, come on. You can do it. You can do it. Test, test, test. Test, test, test. We're going to go without this thing. We definitely do now. Okay,、um, so nobody makes those changes or you decide to make changes when you're sitting there, right? How come it is that, that at、uh, New Year's everybody makes resolutions? Why is that? Because it's a new year, it's a fresh start, and all that stuff. Did you know that we can stop、uh, what we're doing and make changes at any time in our lives? But according to John Maxwell, he's a leadership expert. He said there's really only three times that people make changes in their lives. It has nothing to do with the calendar. The only time people make changes, number one, is when they hurt enough that they have to.、Uh, you have. You have a knee problem and it hurts you enough that you finally go get surgery. You have some emotional problem in a relationship and it hurts you enough that you either put healthy boundaries in that relationship or you leave that relationship.、Um, so you hurt enough that you have to change. Second thing is you learn enough that you want to. Now, we have a single moms ministry here, and one of the things that you have to do,、uh, single moms have to fill out this application. They tell us what they need, whether it's help with their house or small engine repair or whatever it is. We put that into a team, and they, they contact the right people. And then not only do we help the moms with that, but we try to get them into some type of、um, learning situation, whether it's Financial Peace University, whether it's in our Celebrate Recovery, Ladies Bible Study, whatever it is, because we want to teach these ladies that, that there's a different way to do life. That maybe they have grown up with, and we want to help them with parenting. We want to help them with their finances. We want to help them with all kinds of different things. So, we want people, we believe that people change if they learn enough that they're able to change. Well, the third reason is when they receive enough that they're able to. When we go to Haiti, one of the things that we're doing is we're working in churches and schools. We're actually building a school. The school part is completed, we need to finish the、uh, church part. But Pastor Valco is in Mariani. And one of the things that we want to do is we want to give them enough stuff that their church then becomes self sufficient. When,、uh, when the earthquake happened, they had a church building, but it was completely destroyed. And so the first year we went, we actually laid the foundation for their,、um, for their building there. And they were meeting in the street. We didn't get to go to church with them because there wasn't room for us. If we had taken our team out there, we would have about doubled the size of their church. And so they put speakers out in the road, dirt road. Those of you who've been there, you know where I'm talking about. It's just crazy. People were just meeting in the street. Well, then they got a foundation, they got a tent. Now they have、um, the school building, and we just need to eventually get the roof on that thing. We want them to be self sufficient, self sustaining. 
Some people, if you help them, it's kind of like teach a man to fish and he'll be able to feed himself the rest of his life. That's the idea. When you receive enough that you're able to change. And none of those things have anything to do with the calendar. It has to do with a catalyst that happens in somebody's life, whether you heard enough, receive enough, or learn enough that you make choices to change. Now, how many of you have ever, this is truth telling, in this church, it's okay, and God sees, he knows anyway. How many of you have ever looked at somebody else's life and thought, I wish I had what they have, like their house? Dude, be nice to have a house like that, right? Or I wish I had that job. We used to, to make fun of Janie's mom because she worked at a bank, and I mean, Sniffles Day, National Sniffles Day, they got to take off, bankers, right, Brad? Any, any, no. <laughs> tomorrow, yes, that's right. You do get off tomorrow, don't you? <laughs> I hadn't planned that, but good. Thank you. Thank you for contributing. So you, you look at somebody else's life and you think, oh, I want that car and I wish I had that or, or even I wish I had their type of marriage or I had that type of relationship with Christ that that person has. And we tend to look at those people and we think that, that we can't have what they have. Or how many of you are watching the Olympics right now? I mean, yeah, I know. It's the Winter Olympics. We've never been that great at the Winter Olympics, but we're winning something. We're in the top four, which to me, I'm like, yes, we're winning something. I like that. Um, when I was a kid, I remember watching the Olympics and thinking it would be the coolest thing ever to be the gold medal winner, stand on top of the podium, and hear the Star Spangled Banner. And we have decided, if we're ever in charge of the International Olympic Committee, the American that it's going to be a requirement to know the Star-Spangled Banner and at least mouth the words when they're playing it because we think that's unacceptable for you to win a gold medal and not be able to sing the Star-Spangled Banner. But we look at somebody else's life and we think that is totally unattainable. Maybe Olympics is, but I got some good news for you today. Um, most of the time, it's the small things that no one ever sees that result in the big things that everyone, everyone wants right? Small things that no one sees that result in the big things that everyone wants. When I was a freshman in high school, my mom bought me a subscription to Texas Monthly. Hello. Texas Sports Monthly. And uh, it was one of the best. It's a defunct magazine now, but it's one of the best things mom ever got me. I read about all of the, the schools in the Southwest Conference. How many of you are old enough to remember the Southwest Conference? Yeah. Uh-huh. Showing our age there. Uh, I read about everything, but what I really loved, I read that thing cover to cover. I loved the stories, the backstories of these athletes, how they got to where they were. And what I discovered was they put in hours and hours and hours of practice that nobody ever saw. Maybe their parents understood because they're running around different practices and different things. The Olympians put in all kinds of hours and hours, all kinds of things that, that um, nobody ever sees. And so I started watching then... You know, ESPN has all of these backstories. I've been watching all these stories about the Olympians, and it makes me understand a little bit more about their struggle, and so I root for them more. Uh, the lady who got the, uh, the silver medal, Noelle Pikas, whatever her last name is. Anyway, she's married, has two children, saw the whole story of the struggle they went through. She went through injury and all of this sacrifice, and I was rooting for her. She got a silver medal. Yay, all of that stuff. It's great. When I know the backstory, I root for them, and I begin to realize... The, the incredible amount of training that they have to do to get to that point. And it's stuff that nobody ever sees. And so that's a principle that we need to talk about over these next few weeks. If you want to succeed in the big things, you have to pay attention to the small things. For example, if you decided that you wanted to read your Bible through in a year, there's 66 books in the Bible. Did you know if you average 15 minutes per day, then you will be able to read your Bible through in an entire year? 
365 days. Now, you have 1,440 minutes, 1,440 minutes in a day. 15 minutes is 1% of your total day, your 24-hour period. Now, in anything, when you're looking at percentages, is 1% a big amount or a small amount? It is a very small amount. And so you do something small, you do it over time, and you accomplish a lot of stuff. Uh, I, was, I did a little research this week, and, and just to find out how you maintain um, like your weight and you know, a, good, a good average of time to go to the, uh, the gym. If you just do somewhere between two to five hours a week, not only can you maintain, but you can be in great shape. You have 168 hours in a week. If you spend three to five hours, that's less than 3% of your week. Is 3% a large amount or a small amount? Small amount. Okay. Uh, I read about this marriage counselor that was talking to this couple, and he said, if you want a successful marriage, you need to pray together as a couple every day. And, of course, the couple's like, how long? And he said, well, it depends on the day. Some days you can get away with quick prayers. Some days you need long prayers. If you have teenagers, it's long prayer times that you must have to get them through it. And so what the, uh, when Janie and I pray, we, we have a habit of praying every day. Three to five minutes is usually what we pray unless somebody's in trouble and then we pray a lot. Um, but here's what we've learned. When you pray together, it, it in, you have to be talking about things. So Janie and I call it a, a slumber party whenever we go to bed and we just lay there talking. You know, Sometimes we talk a long time and, and, and sometimes I'm tired. She never does this, but the other night, man, I was just exhausted. And she's just talking, 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 talking. And I really, I honestly did. I thought she was finished. And, and so we take turns praying every night. And sometimes we playfully argue over whose turn it is. And so I said, I think it's your turn. And she was right in the middle of a sentence. I, didn't, I wasn't even paying attention. That's how bad it was. And, and she goes, are you trying to cut me off? And I go, no, 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 sorry. Keep talking, baby. She goes, oh, no, we're praying, you know. Um, but here's the thing. When you're talking, when you're praying, and, and uh, well, when you're talking about stuff, big stuff, little stuff, there's, there's a word for that when there is one person talking, the other person listens, the other person listens and responds, and the other person, what's that called? Communication. Did you know that the root problem of every problem in a marriage stems from bad communication? If you're praying together every day, you have to be talking about stuff, the big stuff, the small stuff. When you're talking, your hearts are connecting. When you're praying, you're connecting spiritually. And you know what happens when you do that over a long period of time? You develop a marriage that is strong and has stood the test of time because you're working through stuff. And when two people are willing to work through stuff, there's no such thing as irreconcilable differences. And have you ever noticed that it's really, really hard to pray with someone you hate? Right? So if you're praying with someone regularly, God is going to draw you together. You're going to have a stronger marriage. Now... We're going to see this principle in the Bible, this idea of it's the small things no one sees that lead to the big things that everyone wants. We're going to go to Zechariah. Now, here's the cool thing. If you have version, a smartphone, you can get version. You don't even have to know where Zechariah is because it's a little book in the Old Testament. You just type in Z-E-C-H and it'll pop up for you. Or we put the words on the screen. But if you have your Bibles and if you want to find Zechariah, it is the next to last book in the Old Testament. It's right before Malachi. It's right after Haggai. And then Zephaniah's in there too, so don't get him confused with Zechariah. That'll just totally mess you up. All right, 
So let me tell you a little bit about Zechariah and what's going on in this book of the Bible. Zechariah, um, he, is, he was born in Babylon. And you might ask, why was a Jew born in Babylon? Because the Israelites had been so uh, unfaithful to God that God told them over and over through the prophets, I'm going to allow a foreign country to come and destroy you. And in fact, they're going to destroy the temple. That has happened, and so the Babylonians took all of the Israelites, uh, all of the, the, anybody who had any smarts, any, any ability to do anything, they took them into captivity into Babylon. And so Zechariah is born in Babylon, uh, and his name actually means Yahweh remembers. This is cool, because a whole generation of Israelites have been born in a foreign country, never even stepped foot in their own land, and yet Zechariah's name means what? Yahweh remembers. It means what? All right, just checking. Now, in 538 BC, Zechariah and about 50,000 Jews, that sounds like a lot, but that's a small percentage of the Israelites, got to go back to Jerusalem. And the whole reason they were supposed to go back was to rebuild the temple. So Haggai and Zerubbabel, that's a fun word. Say Zerubbabel. Look at your neighbor and just say it and watch their lips. Zerubbabel. Fun word to say. So I expect somebody to name their son Zerubbabel. Maybe, yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> All right, sorry, just that was totally random. Um, so they go back, and they're supposed to rebuild the temple. And, and they do pretty good for two years. They get the foundation laid, but then opposition arises, and the Israelites, they get um, uh, depressed, and they stop doing anything. But what does Zechariah's name mean? Yahweh remembers. So 15 years later, all that's happened for 15 years is the foundation is laid there. You ever seen a slab that just lays there forever and ever? You see the construction and then nothing happens. Can you imagine if we poured the the foundation out here for our new section of the building and nothing happened for 15 years? What would you think about the church? They're broke. Yeah. I mean, the scripture says you should count the cost before you do something, because if you're not able to finish, everybody will say, duh, you were a dipstick. That's my translation of the Bible. It's actually, you know, that's, that's in there more or less. So it has sat there for 15 years. Nobody had done anything. So God raises up Haggai, the prophet, to uh, remind them. So Haggai, this is wild. Haggai preaches four sermons in four months, and then he disappears. We never hear from him again. After Haggai's first sermon, God calls Zechariah to be the prophet for the country. He begins his public ministry. And his job was to do two things. He was to encourage the Jews, get the job done... And then he was to encourage them to renew themselves spiritually. And here's just a side note. I just learned this this week while I was studying this. Zechariah, once he encourages the people to rebuild the temple, makes more predictions about the Messiah than any other Old Testament prophet outside of Isaiah. That's pretty remarkable. Um, so he, he has this twofold ministry. You're supposed to rebuild the temple. You're supposed to get right with God because God's going to do some amazing things in your future. With his help, they rebuild the temple. It takes them about five years to get it finished. So the words we're going to read happen after the 15 years of nothing going on. Everybody looks at the slab. Everybody's moaning and, and complaining because nothing has been done. Look at verse six of chapter four. uh, Zechariah is having this talk with an angel of the Lord. If you read the rest of the book, you'll see that he's talking to an angel. So then he, the angel, said to me, uh, Zechariah, this is what the Lord says to Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the, uh, at this point, he was the king. He had been appointed king by uh, the Babylonian king. This is what the Lord says to Zerubbabel. It is not by force nor by strength. If you've read any other, you may have heard this, been in church any amount of time, you hear not by might nor by power. What God is saying is, when this temple is finished, not a person, not a human being can claim that they did it. He says, it is not by force nor by strength, but by my what? What's that next word? 
Is that a lowercase s or a capital S? So the capital S stands for what? What kind of spirit? The Holy Spirit. Let's read all that together. It is not by force nor by strength, but by my spirit. My Holy Spirit says the Lord of heaven's army. God's saying you can do self-help all day long for the rest of your life and have very narrow, limited success like a foundation being poured in your own power and nothing happened. But there is a power that can make lives change. It's called transformation. And it comes from God's Holy Spirit. Now, sometimes you just need, some, need a little bit of help. Sometimes you can't do th- something on your own. When uh, years ago, about 10 years ago, we just started the church. And there was a friend of mine who had this land. And Caleb and I used to go fishing out there all the time. He had this 10-acre lake. And it was a great place to take a kid fishing because they could catch all the time. I mean, you just chunk something out there, you catch fish. Well, it had rained several inches the week that we were going to go. But it hadn't rained in a couple of days. And so we load up my truck. Back then, I had, some of you remember, my white GMC two-wheel drive pickup. It was step sides. It was cool, I thought. And so uh, we loaded up with my battery, my trolling motor, and all our fishing gear, and we're going out there. We're going to go get in the flat-bottom boat, and we're going to fish. Well, one of the things that I didn't want to do, because Caleb was too young at that time, and the battery was heavy, I didn't want to have to carry all this stuff a long ways from my truck to the flat-bottom boat. So I was going to get close to the flat-bottom boat as I could so we could unload and then drag it in. We were going to fish. We were going to catch fish. We were going to have a good time. Well, I'm thinking, because, see, I've been stuck at this guy's house twice before. It had become a joke, not to me, but to his family. Oh, Doug's coming. Better get the change ready. You know, that type of thing. And, and so he's pulled me out twice before. So I'm thinking, I am not getting stuck. And so we're coming down. There's this, there's this little creek that used to be dry. It's usually dry. 90% of the time it's dry. But I knew. I knew that there was going to be water in it. So I am hauling buns through there, bouncing up and down. We make it through the creek. And I'm like, yes! About 30 yards past the creek. I can't even describe the noise that it made. If you can imagine a big truck making a squish sound, that's what it was. All of a sudden it goes, only big, loud, and we weren't moving. I mean, you know, and I've done the go forward, go back, uh uh-uh. We sank so far that when we opened the truck, we were scraping the mud. That's how far we were down in the mud. And I'm going, oh, dude, I've done it again. And Caleb is like eight or nine at the time, and he's going, cool. I'm like, this is not cool. There's nothing cool. So I have to call my buddy. His house is about a half mile up. And I call him, and he goes, got stuck, didn't you? And I'm like, yes. So his son comes out, and he and Caleb are both going, this is cool. They thought it was so fun. So he's coming down. He's got a big old dually welding rig. And I'm like, dude, do not get close to me. We j- we'll get enough chain. We'll pull it out. Don't get close. He didn't listen. Pulls right up next to my truck. And you know that squish sound? It's worse in a big dually welding rig. And he went deeper than I did. And he got out and was not happy. So we said, okay, well, let's call his neighbor. His neighbor has a tractor. So we call the neighbor, bring your tractor over. Now you understand, I'm telling you the short version. This took forever. It was so bad that the two boys who thought this was fun went up and started playing video games. You know, they're having a big time up in the house. They've forgotten about us. So we bring the tractor over and we don't get the tractor too far because we're like, we can't get the tractor stuck. How stupid would that be? And so we, we try with the tractor and the tractor can't budge his truck. We're like, oh, no. And, you know, he's a welder. He's a private contractor, and he has to take his welding truck the next day. And I'm like, I'm so sorry. And, and he's a great friend of mine, you know, but he wasn't talking. So, you know, he was ticked off. And so, 
So we finally call a tow truck and that's a whole nother story. Cause I called the tow truck and, and this guy, he, he's, he speaks English, but, but evidently he didn't understand because I'm standing out by the road several miles from where my truck is buried. And the dude comes pulling up in, in a Porsche and I'm like, I need you to pull me out. And he's like, where is it? And I'm like, no, you don't understand. So he had to go back and get the tow truck and come back. So eventually he gets the tow truck out there. We put the tow truck as far as humanly possible from the trucks because we didn't want to get them stuck. And we bring the tow truck, we bring the cable out, we wrap it around his axle, and, and he starts the winch. As he starts the winch, we're watching the truck, we're watching the truck, and then all of a sudden out of the corner of your eye, you see the tow truck backing up. <laughs> he is so buried that it's coming this way, and we're going, no, stop, stop, you know, and we're like, oh, man. So what do we do? So we eventually, we find the biggest tree we can find. We drive the tow truck up to it. We chain it around, just wrapping it, wrapping, wrapping. Then we put the the cable out there and praise God, his truck started moving. And then I guess they were just both kind of ticked off at me. So instead of doing that with my truck, they hook it up with my truck and they take the tow truck and they just start driving. And I'm going, oh dear God, don't let my, my... drive train be pulled out of this thing. My axle come up, boom. And we're flying through. And he just, once he gets going, we're just, I'm going backwards in this mud. It's flying everywhere. And I'm thinking my truck will never be the same. Here's the point of all that. There are times that you need a tow truck attached to the biggest tree you can find because there's a power you need to get unstuck. Some of you have been trying to get unstuck by yourself for years and you keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. This time, I'm going to have the willpower. I'm just going to tell you, this is the year. Not by might, not by willpower, but God says if you'll tap into his power, he will make some major changes in your life. There is a power to get you unstuck, but you can't do it by yourself. Verse 7. Nothing, not even a mighty mountain will stand in Zerubbabel's way. It will become a level plain before him. This is the cool thing. When God calls you to do something, the size of the obstacles does not matter. It's the size of your God who can overcome those obstacles that matters. That's the only thing that matters. There's no force on earth that can stop what God has declared will happen. Our God is greater. Our God is stronger. He is higher than any other. And if our God is for us, who can ever stop us? If our God is for us, what can stand against? There is nothing in all of heaven and earth that can stop the power of God. And when Zerubbabel sets the final stone of the temple in place, the people will shout, may God bless it, may God bless it. Before the construction ever began on this slab, on this foundation, God saw the completed project. And here's the thing. God sees what he's calling you to do. And if you will tap into his power, he sees that you can have the completed project. But it's by his power, not by your power. You ever tried something that you thought God wanted you to do and you failed miserably? It's because either one, God didn't tell you to do it, or number two, you did it in your power and you failed. Verse 8. Then another message came to me from the Lord. Zerubbabel is the one who laid the foundation of this temple and he will complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of heaven's armies has sent me. Now, this is pretty cool. And if you want to read the background story, you can go all the way back to Ezra. Ezra's earlier in the Old Testament. If you read Ezra and Haggai, you'll find out that that 
the, the construction went so slowly that some of the older people were coming, some of those people who were alive when, the, when Solomon's temple, before it was destroyed, they were coming, they were looking at the slab. In Ezra's time, they just looked at the slab and they're crying because this wasn't going to be as good as Solomon's temple. And then in Haggai's time, after they started the construction, some of the same people are coming and they're whining and crying because this temple is not as big as the other temple. Oh, in Solomon's day, everything was better. And these people forgot. It's not the size of the temple. It's the size of the God who visits that temple. It's not the size you and I have. Our, our physical strength, our, our willpower, our mind, that's not what matters. Because the Bible says that my body, if I'm a Christ follower, my body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who lives within me. And my body doesn't even belong to me because I've been bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. It is the size of the God who visits the temple that can make an incredible difference in your life. Uh, and uh, I want you to remember that we started, New Life started... 12 years ago with 22 people on a Saturday night. The next week we had 15. We're going the wrong direction. We have 10 times that many people now, but I'm going to tell you, God is not done with us. Don't ever get upset about a small beginning because I want you to see what God says in verse 10. Very important verse. Do not despise these what? Read that with me. Do not despise these small beginnings. Read it again. Do not despise these small beginnings. Why? Here it is. For the Lord rejoices to see the work begin, to see the plumb line in Zerubbabel's hand. God called them to do it. Do you think it blessed God's heart when they started the work? The plumb line that, you know, he's just, he's just making it uh, plumb and he's making things level. It's just that he started the work. God says, I just want you to start what I've called you to do. Um, and you know, we have this problem because we live in the ESPN era when it's all highlights. I mean, they do Friday funnies. That's pretty funny. I, I, I love Friday funnies cause they show, um, professional athletes messing up royally on TV. That's pretty cool. But most of the time we just see the highlights and we forget that they're lowlights. So let me, let me point something out to you. Um, who is considered the greatest basketball player ever to live? Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan. That, that was a consensus. There may have been a few others, but you're wrong. Michael Jordan was the greatest one. Uh, <laughs> Michael Jordan made over 7,000 free throws in his professional career. You know how many he missed? Over 1,400. So the greatest, we consider greatest ever, he missed over 1,400 free throws. But that's not the best part. I looked up how many field goals, because, you know, when you make a shot in in the game that's called a field goal, you know how many field goals he made? 12,192 field goals made. That's a lot, 12,000. You know how many he missed? 12,345, 49.5% from the field, and we think that's awesome. He missed more shots than he made, and we call him the greatest ever. And, and I've watched some of his backstory, and some of y'all have too. Can you imagine the amount of shots that guy has taken in a gym during his lifetime that nobody ever saw? Unbelievable amounts of practice. And I just want you to realize everyone starts small. We, we have studied a lot of King David. You remember King David, the, the, the most popular king, the best king Israel had in the Old Testament. What was King David's profession before he was king? Shepherd. That's, that's actually considered the lowest job that you could have uh, at that time. What does a shepherd do um, whenever something attacks the animals? It protects the animals. And, and see, even before he was chosen king... Samuel came to Jesse, his dad, and said, I, God has sent me here to anoint one of your sons king. And so 
Samuel, uh, Jesse has eight sons. He brings seven of them before him, and, and Samuel's getting frustrated. He goes, these are all the sons you got? He goes, well, I got one more, but he's the youngest, and he's watching sheep. And Samuel says, uh, you better bring him in, because God's rejected all these seven. Brings in the youngest, and he's king. Now, where were the cameras when David's out there chasing? Because the Bible tells us that he killed a lion and a bear who attacked the sheep because you do anything to protect the sheep. Where were the cameras when David was doing that? When the king was out there as a shepherd chasing down sheep? Where was the notoriety? Where are the historians writing down everything that David said? They were nowhere to be found, right? Because God was testing him in small things to see if God could trust him with bigger things. It started small. Um, you've heard the story of Ruth. In fact, just uh, right before Christmas, she was one of the people that we studied when we were looking at the family tree of Jesus. She's famous because she's in the family tree of Jesus. But we said it was interesting because she was a foreigner. If, if ever there should be somebody not in the family line of Jesus, it should be a foreigner because the, the purpose of Matthew's uh, genealogy was to prove that Jesus was the Jew's Jew. So why would you put a foreigner in there? God put her in there. And if you remember her story, she was a foreigner and, and Naomi and her husband go to this foreign land with their two sons and Ruth married one of the sons. Well, then Naomi's husband dies and then um, Ruth's husband dies and uh, Orpah's husband dies, the other son. All of these guys die and Naomi says, maybe I should go back to Israel. She goes back to Israel. She tells her two daughters-in-law, you stay here, find a, a, a husband here and they'll take care of you. Orpah said, okay. And she goes back and she finds a husband, stays there, we never hear from her again. Naomi said, I will never leave your side. Your people will be my people, your God will be my God. Where you go, I will go. So she comes back and she is unbelievably faithful to her mother-in-law. She takes care of her mother-in-law, gets a job, a servant's job in Israel to take care of her mother-in-law. And through her unbelievable faithfulness, God rewards her with a husband. And we are still talking about her marriage a thousand years later. But only God and Naomi saw her faithfulness up until she met Boaz and married Boaz. And, and I just this last week, I was reading in my daily Bible, reading about Daniel in the lion's den, read about it again. And uh, do you remember what got Daniel in trouble? What got him thrown in the lion's den? Praying. Specifically, do you remember what he did? The Bible says that three times a day, he would go up into his bedroom, he would open the windows facing Jerusalem, and he would pray three times a day. Why facing Jerusalem? Because he believed that God was going to restore the Israelite nation at some point. And so even after there was a law that was passed that said, you can pray to no one except the king, where, where does Daniel go? He goes up and he prays, and he's faithful. And nobody saw the praying for years and years. Three times a day, he got on his knees and he prayed to God. Got him thrown into the lion's den, but God delivered him, and he was then promoted to the second in command of the kingdom. It is the small things that nobody sees that results in the big things that everybody wants. So over these next couple of weeks... Next three weeks, we're going to be talking about little bitty things that can have a major, well, that will have an impact on your life for good or for bad. And, and what I want, obviously I want good for your life, but that's not up to me. That's your choice, whether this ends good or bad. Um, next week, we're going to talk about thoughts. Week two of this series, we're going to talk about your thoughts because the Bible says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And so what that means, what you think about, that's who you are as a person. Next week, we're, after that, we're going to talk about words. Uh, because the Bible says, from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. That means whatever is in there is going to come out. When you're under stress, the real you is going to come out. And so if we can change our thoughts, we can change our words. And then the last one we're going to look at is habits. Because you become what you repeatedly do. You, 
all, every one of us, we're the sum total of our habits. And so we're going to try to figure out some good habits to replace some of the bad habits because you become what you're committed to. And so if you want to change the course of your life, you start with thoughts, which lead to different words, which leads to different actions. Your actions are what determine your destiny. And so we want to put you on a destiny that leads toward God. Now, I want you to to think about this as we wrap this up. In the Bible, there's a lot of one things. And so I'm going to show you a couple of them, a couple of them for good and a couple of them for bad. Um, David, we talked about him. Look what it says in Psalm 27, four, the one thing that David wanted. He says, the one thing I ask of the Lord, the thing I seek most is to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. If your singular desire is to continually be in God's presence, then you could be a man or a woman after God's own heart. But that has to be your singular focus. Um, Paul had a rough past before he was a Christian, had an even rougher past once he became a Christian. He was, he was beaten, he was persecuted, he was shipwrecked, he was stoned, not in the way they do in Colorado. This was rocks, you know. Um, and, and he had a horrible life after he came to Christ because people were trying to kill him because he was a Christ follower. And I want you to look what he says in Philippians 3.13. One thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. You see, here's what I deal with all the time. People thinking that they are defined by what they've done in their past. That's not Christianity. Christianity is you're a child of the king and he has a better future regardless of what your past is. So the the thing I tell people more than anything else is you do not have to be defined by your past. You can be defined by God's future for you, but you can't do it by your power or your strength. You have to tap into God's strength. And let me ask you this. Do we consider Paul a success or a failure? An incredible success. In fact, he wrote half of the New Testament, and we consider him the best Christian in the New Testament after Jesus Christ. He's an incredible success. And I want you to realize from his life that there's power and focus. When you discover the one thing that God wants you to do with your life, you will tap into a power that you've never known before. But if you miss the one thing that God wants you to do in your life, you will miss unbelievable amounts of blessings because God is not obligated to bless disobedient people. So we need, I will tell them again, Diana. God doesn't bless disobedient people. Blessing always comes after obedience. Now, the other side of that is Jesus told Martha, only one thing is necessary. Mary gets it. You missed it because you're too busy fixing the meal to spend time with Jesus. The rich young ruler that we talked about last week, he missed the kingdom of God because the Bible says he went away very sad and, he, and Jesus said, this one thing you lack, sell all your possessions, give it to the poor and you'll have treasures in heaven. And we talked about this. God doesn't expect all of us to sell everything unless it's an idol. God wants us to tear down idols in our lives. And, and the rich young ruler missed the blessing of God over one thing. So the challenge that I have for you today and over these weeks of this series is I want you to pray and seek God for one word that he wants to be your guiding word this whole year and one verse. And I'll, I'll explain that. I was praying through this and trying to figure out what God wanted me to do this year. 
in, in, in my life, my, my spiritual life. And my word for the year is expectation. And I'll show you where I got that. Some of you already know this. Psalm 5.3 is my verse for the year. I'm going to come back to this verse over and over. And it says, in the morning, O Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning, I lay my request before you and wait in expectation. I am expecting God to do more in New Life Community Church in 2014 than he's done before. I'm expecting God to grow me in my Christian life more than he's ever done before. I'm expecting God to use me in ways he's never done before. And I'm going to lay my request before him every day of this year. And I'm going to wait and watch to see what God does in my life. Now, I've been praying about a word for the church and a verse for the church. And it's different than my word. And here it is. I want to explain it to you. The word for the church is transformation. I want everything we do this year to be about transformation. If we have a ladies' Bible study, it should be about transformation. We don't need more information. We need more transformation. We need God's word to penetrate our hearts, judge the thoughts and intentions of our hearts so that we become more like Jesus Christ. I want us to be transformed. I pray for our children to be transformed, that we have more and more children that were baptized like Emily was last week. We want the baptism waters to be filled over and over because it represents someone who's given their life to Christ, who has come to him and wants to grow up and be a fully devoted follower of Christ. I want everything we do, small groups, men's study, uh, single mom's ministry, everything we do should be about transformation because God didn't give us the Bible to inform us. He gave us the Bible to transform us. And here's where the verse comes from, Romans 12, 2. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And here's why I want you to be transformed. This is the key. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Our minds are dominated by this world, and so it's no wonder we don't hear from God what we should do. We, we go in our power and we fail. We date in our power and we fail. We marry in our power and we fail. We try to do work in our power and we fail. There is a greater power. Not by might, not by strength, but by my spirit, says the Lord. So my challenge to you is I want to ask you if you will pray that God will give you one word that will come back to you over and over. Because when we run up against a problem this year, I'm going to expect God to do something in that problem. I'm going to wait and I'm going to pray and I'm going to do everything God tells me to do until God resolves those issues. And, and I fully expect God to pay off the building out here. I mean, we've, we've already paid $25,000 that, that, that came in extra. <laughs> Our little church, I expect God to pay the rest of that building. I expect that God's not done with us yet. I expect God to lead us to the 300 barrier. People told us we couldn't get to 200 and we, we average over 200. Well, it's time to move forward. 200's not enough because empty chairs don't come to Christ. And I'm expecting you to grow up in Christ and to tell other people about the life-changing, well, the bread of life. Jesus called himself the bread of life. And I'm expecting you to bring people to this church to the point that we have to go to two services. I can't do it in my power. You can't do it in your power. But when we tap into God's power, he is not done with us. Can you imagine 10 years from now having this same talk about what God did over the second 10 years of new life? Oh my goodness. When we get it, God's going to blow the doors off this place. So bow your heads for just a moment.
And I want you to begin asking God right now, God, what is the one word that you have for me? And you may not know. He may not tell you now. You may have to discover that in, in the scripture. And would you say, God, would you show me a verse that can be my anchor verse that pulls me back to true north on the compass throughout this year? Would you pray that? Father, I thank you that you're not done with us. I thank you for all the problems that are going to come up this year that you're going to mature us and grow us through when we follow your word and we do what you've said. And I thank you that you're just beginning to awaken a sleeping giant called New Life Community Church that will change Anderson County and the world. And I thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen.